0: When I was a teenager living in Nashville, my family and I attended a small church plant that met in a school, and uh, while we were there, we made some friends there, obviously, and one of the people who attended was this woman who was in her early 30s, and she was unmarried, and I remember overhearing this one conversation with the pastor, and this is what he said to her, since you don't have a husband, I'm the authority in your life. The bible teaches women to submit to men and since you don't have a husband you have to submit to me And I remember being a teenager and just cringing at that. That just felt so Wrong and so weird to hear someone say so is that what the bible teaches? Over the last few weeks, we've been exploring the biblical idea of womanhood And we found that it's much more complex and nuanced than many of our american churches would lead us to believe, especially some of the churches I grew up in. Now, this is my last message in the series before Marissa and Darby close us out next week. And so we're going to talk about this idea. Does the Bible teach that women need to submit to their husbands? And if they don't have a husband, they need to submit to a male pastor or priest or minister. Um, And as we've seen throughout our series on what the Bible says about women, the answer is going to be a little bit complicated. So let's look at where this idea comes from in Ephesians chapter 5 starting in verse 21 submit to one another out of reverence for christ wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife as christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the savior now as the church submits to christ so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but what I'm really talking about is Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Um, So first of all, I think it's pretty clear here that Paul is not suggesting that all women everywhere need to submit to all Men. Paul was talking about households here, and specifically he wants to talk about how the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus transforms our home and our families. How the reality of a Jewish rabbi dying and coming back to life, this rabbi being God, being Jesus, somehow transforms everything about how our homes and our families should work. And the very first line here makes it clear that men and women are to submit to each other— out of respect for christ or out of imitation for christ the ideal christian home is not the woman submitting to the man but men and women submitting to each other because christ is in both and christ by example led a life of submission that's paul's thesis statement for this whole um, this whole section submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he's going to argue why men should submit to women and why women should submit to men. He's arguing for mutual humility, mutual respect, mutual submission instead of domineering and power. First here, though, he talks about why women should submit to their husbands, and his argument is the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Now, the idea of headship doesn't mean the man is in charge and the woman has no say, and it's just like the man's the head and that's it. Rather, scholar R.A. Robinson says this, It is the function of the head to plan for the safety of the body, to secure the body from danger, and to provide for the welfare of the body. Therefore, if... The husband is trying to plan for the safety of the family, secure the family from danger, and see to its needs are met. The wife should be in partnership with that endeavor. The wife should say, hey, he wants to protect the family. He wants to do what's best for the family. I want to be a part of that. I'm going to submit to keeping the family safe and healthy. And headed in the right direction that's not saying the man's always right and he's always got the end-all saying on everything It's just that the head of the body is responsible for the body and the head of the family Should be responsible for keeping it safe And as long as the husband is working towards that goal, the woman should be working alongside him for that Then he talks about why the man should submit to the woman and he gives two reasons here first of all, he says It's a picture of how Jesus loved the church. When husbands love their wives well, it reflects how Jesus loves the church. It reflects how God loves human beings. When a man sacrifices and submits to love his wife well, it is a testament that what we believe about Jesus is true. If we want people to believe that Jesus came back from the dead, that he is the way to know God and to live an abundant life, we need to love our wives well. And then his second argument is you need to submit to your life because when you love your wife well, it is beneficial for you. He says this is, like, good for yourself. If you love your wife well, it's good for you because you and your wife are one. Now, the word submit used here in Greek is mino. Can everybody say that? The word is just hippotasso. Hippotasso or hippotasomino means to hear what someone needs and to get it for them or to give it to them. It's to set aside what you want for the greater good of someone else. Submit in the English language is a loaded word, but in Greek it simply means to hear the needs of someone else and to help them get what they need. Marriage is setting aside your needs for the needs of someone else, and that works really well when they're also setting aside their needs for your needs. Um, When you're partnered with somebody else who's setting aside their needs for your needs, and you're setting aside your needs for their needs, it works beautifully. But as humans, it doesn't always work like that, does it? Marriage and submission in the biblical sense is not about dominance and power, but about caring for someone and providing for them What they need to flourish, to become the best versions of themselves, to live and love like Jesus. In the Greek, the word submit isn't repeated in the verses about women. Now, stay with me for a second here. Our English translations read like this. This is verse 2. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Darby always likes to note that it does not say husbands make your wives submit, but rather wives. This is a choice. This is a decision to make. But that word there submit is not found in the Greek in Greek It literally reads like this wives to your husbands as you do to the Lord in context Paul is saying obey each other care for each other give each other what they need Set aside what you need to meet the needs of your spouse But he's not specifically calling out the wives to submit to husbands or men Once again, if you look down a little bit farther the verse in English reads now as the church submits to Christ Also, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. That's how it reads in English. In Greek, it literally says, now as the church submits to Christ, so wives to their husbands in everything. English translators have emphasized female submission while the text only implies it. They've made sure they get that word in there before it mentions anything about the women. But now the next verse commands husbands to love their wives as Jesus loves the church as a act of submission because remember what's the thesis statement up there um sorry in verse 21 uh, previously i said verse 2 verse 21 says submit to one another out of reverence for christ so in all these verses about women and in all these verses about men it's implying submission for both but english translation translators have only added submission into the verses about the wives We've downplayed the idea of submission on the man's part in our English translations We added the word submit into the verses about women because it is implied But it's also implied in the verses about husbands as well We just chose not to add the word to the verses about men where it is also applied implied to them Now my uh, Calvinist friends, uh, they love Wayne Grudem's systematic theology It's essentially like their second Bible and uh is Wayne Grudem argues that there is no such thing as mutual submission that in submission there is always one person who is dominating and one person who is surrendering and I just don't think that's realistic. He says his example is that for Jesus, for instance, we submit to him, but he doesn't submit to us. But that's exactly what happened in the garden when he was headed to the cross and he satisfied aside what he wanted to avoid the cross to avoid drinking the cup of sin and death and judgment. And instead, he said, I'm going to do what's best for someone else. He submitted to our needs rather than demanding his own rights. And when we, um, when we imitate Jesus, we're doing that exact same thing. Mutual submission does not demand that there always be one dominant person and one surrendering person. Mutual submission does work. It happens all the time, and I believe even in the example of Jesus. Paul goes on to argue that when a man surrenders for the good of his spouse, he is actually helping himself. And Paul cleverly plays on this idea of marriage from Genesis that Jesus quotes in his ministry as well. Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they should become one flesh. In the beginning, in the book of Genesis, when man and woman are created, God says that he takes Adam and he splits him in half and makes adam and eve two split pieces of humanity in marriage Those two split pieces come back together to form a new person paul is arguing that in marriage There is no longer the man or the woman but a new person that is a combination of the two It's not that the man dominates and that the woman just has to follow along It's that in marriage the man and the woman are no longer just themselves. They are now united into a new being The idea is that the two sides of ourselves are working in in harmony instead of wrestling for control. That's what mutual submission looks like. You have two sides to this one person that you are in marriage. And mutual submission means you're working in harmony. You're headed in the same direction. You want the same goal. You're not fighting each other for dominance. Let's look at the final verse here. In it, it says... Each one of you also must love his wife as himself and the wife must respect her husband There's a popular popular marriage series called love and respect by emerson Egerich when darby and I were getting married a pastor suggested we go through the series together And uh, the entire thing is based on these verses the premise is that men really don't want to be loved They want to be respected and women don't really want to be respected They want to be loved and That's just a crazy way to start a marriage. First of all, like that's a terrible way to start your marriage Love and respect aren't mutually exclusive. Love and respect are impossible without each other You can't love someone you don't respect and you can't respect someone you don't love Paul just got done saying you and your spouse are one so you're gonna need the same things What you need, your spouse needs, and what your spouse needs, you need. If you despise your spouse, you're despising yourself. If you hate your spouse, you're hating yourself. But what Paul says he really wants to talk about is what Jesus did for the church and how that should shape us as single people, as married people, as widowers, and divorcees. Paul starts off this chapter back in verse 1, which we didn't read. Ephesians 5, 1 says this, watch what Jesus does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Our daughter is two, and she already copies things that Darby and I do, and that's really terrifying. Like we have to really watch what we say. I have this tendency to go around and say, I hate this show. I hate that song. I hate this. I hate this. I'm a very negative person, I guess. And uh, so now all of a sudden I'm like, I have to watch myself because guys going to start being like, I hate this. I hate this. And i don't want her to copy me and you know sometimes when she stands up off the the floor she goes oh oh not because she's hurting but because that's what we do when we stand up off the floor because we're parents in our 40s and we have achy joints kids learn much more from watching than from lectures and paul wants us to learn how to behave in our relationships from watching how jesus has behaved with us When he was in the garden before the cross, he said, I can do what's best for me or I can do what's best for them. I'm going to choose to do what's best for them. And we're supposed to see that. We're supposed to think about that. We're supposed to absorb it and then emulate it in our own relationships. In marriage, both the man and the woman are expected to act like Jesus would to the other party. That's the goal of life, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus. And ultimately, to do what Jesus did, to live and love like he did. At Horizon, we believe that the Christian life is learning how to live and love like Jesus. And we think that would change the world. And that starts by changing you and changing your home and your family. Paul is say, saying that living and loving like Jesus will change your marriage because it will change you in your marriage. Look at how Jesus acted and act like that whether you are male or female. Now I just want to say right here, marriage is hard. Um, it's one of the hardest things I think I've ever done. Darby and I, one of our biggest arguments was over a Wawa quesadilla, and uh, oh man, it was a like, the it was a horrible, horrible fight. And um, you're like, why would you ever argue with someone over a Wawa quesadilla? Like maybe a hoagie. Oh, it was the sour cream that came with the quesadilla, but. Like why would you argue with anyone about that, let alone be a fight where you are like using profanity and name-calling and yelling? Like why would you do that? Well, marriage brings up your shadow side, and marriage forces your shadow side to the surface, and it forces you to either deal with it and submit and find ways to serve the person across from you or ways to uh, – it either bubbles up and becomes toxic or you bubbles up and you deal with it church has really built up the idea of marriage and they've done that to prevent premarital sex they're like we don't want people having premarital sex or sex outside of marriage and so we're going to talk about marriage like it's amazing and it's going to solve all your problems and it's going to be the perfect thing but in doing that we have sometimes made marriage out to be this thing that it's not that it's going to somehow completely fulfill us and that if you just get it right everything's going to be easy marriage is hard work it is challenging and as I talk to older Christians, the really good part of marriage only comes after years of working through hard things together, staying together through hard things, and working hard day after day after day, choosing year after year to say, not what I want, but what they want. Not what I want, but what they want. And over time, you get to the good stuff. But it's, it takes a long time. To get there. It's like a long road trip and you go through a lot of boring states before you get to your destination There's a lot of hard boring states to go through in marriage. Timothy Keller says Marriage doesn't bring us into conflict with our spouse. It brings us into conflict with our own selfishness And what paul is asking us to do is look at jesus who sat aside selfishness to submit to what we needed and do that same thing in your relationships Mutual submission is not about dominating your spouse about controlling uh, rather Mutual submission is about controlling your own selfishness. We selfishly don't want to submit to anyone I mean someone tells me what to do and my natural thing is I don't want to do that because they told me I would if I did it on my own it'd be fine But they told me so now I don't want to do it. I'm stubborn. I'm selfish We want to prioritize our desires over someone else's but we are at our best When, like Christ, we set aside our desires for the good of someone else. You are your best self. You are the best version of yourself, not when you get what you want, but when you set aside what you want for the good of someone else. Okay, so Alex, who gets the final say in a disagreement? You and Darby want very different things for your family. You have very different objectives. All of a sudden, you disagree about something Who gets the final word in a disagreement is it always the husband is it always the wife is it always the person with the more dominant personality who is it well we both do like there's times where darby has the final word in a disagreement and we talk about a situation and i think we should do this and she thinks we should do this and sometimes she gets the final word and then sometimes i do i trust that the spirit of god in her has the ability to disagree with me through her If you never let your spouse disagree with you, you believe that the Holy Spirit in them has no right to tell you that you're wrong. You think you are more important. You think you have a higher authority than the Holy Spirit who dwells in your spouse. Sometimes God will speak through your spouse and sometimes he will speak louder through your spouse than anyone else. When Darby and I first came to Philadelphia, and we were talking about where to plant, and we were driving around to different places. We ended up crossing um, right out here on Lancaster Avenue through Bryn Mawr, and I said, let's get out and pray. And I got out and prayed, and I felt in a still, small voice that God was speaking to me and telling me to plant here. And now just a few blocks down from where I got out and prayed, we were meeting in a building. Um, Darby, though, didn't feel that. When Darby and I were praying about where to plant um, in the Northeast, we both prayed. We took some time to fast and pray. We both came back together. We didn't influence each other's answer, and we both had written down Philadelphia. But when it came to planting in Bryn Mawr, Darby just didn't sense the Holy Spirit telling her where to plant. And so when I said, I'm confident that the Spirit is saying this, she said, I don't hear it. I don't feel it. I don't see it, but I trust that what you're telling me about the Holy Spirit speaking to you is true. And so I got the final word on that. Um, When it came time where we had tried to get pregnant for years and then we had a miscarriage and then we tried to get pregnant and we did fertility treatments, we kept trying to be parents and nothing was happening and nothing was working. And Darby said, I feel like God is leading us to adoption. And I was like, oh, I don't know that sounds scary, I don't know how I feel about that, I have all these emotions, I'd love to have a biological child, I don't know if I want to do this, and um, I I wasn't i didn't get this sense from god that this is our next step but she was confident and i trusted her and she had the final say on that and i say thank you god that she did because if i had dug in my heels and said no we're not going to do that because i don't sense anything i don't feel anything i'm not ready to do that we wouldn't have this beautiful little girl back here right now and so sometimes i get the final word, sometimes she does but the the difference is if she tells me i am certain this is what god is telling me I'm going to go with that because i believe she has the holy spirit inside of her and if i say hey i am certain that god is telling me this she trusts that i'm not lying to her that i'm not manipulating her that i really sense that and feel that so submit to jesus submit to each other the person we all want to be is not someone who demands everything no one likes to be around that person you know those people who are always like my rights, what I want. We're going to the place that I want. We're doing it my way. Those people are exhausting. You know, we, I have some friends like that, um, and they're just toxic. And when you're around them, you feel tired. We're our best version when we're someone who says, how can I meet the needs of someone else? How can I see what someone deeply, truly needs? It's not always what they think they need, but what they deeply, truly need. And how can I set aside what I want to help It's someone who, like Jesus, submits their life to God's plan for the good of other people. See, the will of God for your life is simply this, that you submit yourself to him each day and you say, Father, what you want today, not what I want. I live. I'm alive today to please you. Any work I do, I do for you, not for my glory, not for my advancement, not so that I feel like I have achievement. I trust you to be God. Will you lead me today? I will follow you. And I want to end. I just want to end with this uh, prayer together. Jesus, we submit to you. Just as you submitted to the cross, just as you submitted to die in our place for our wrongdoings, we submit to you. What, we, what you want today, that's what I want done, not what I want. Where you want me to go today, not where I want to go. I live to please Any work I do, I do for you.